I'm going to be carrying on our, service, our, our sermon series sorry, on 1 Corinthians. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 8. We've been spending the last few weeks on the subject of relationships. We've been talking about marriage. We've been talking about singleness. We've been talking about divorce. We've been talking about what it means to live in a community and how, in our relationships, how that uh, affects and um, impacts how we should live. And Paul's now kind of concluded that particular question. So we're moving on to a new topic within the book of 1 Corinthians. And for many of us, it might feel a bit foreign. Um, we're going to be, I'm just going to read the passage first so that we um, kind of see the context. And hopefully then we're going to just dive in and get some real practical points of what it means to live in a culture as a Christian. So we're in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, we're going to read just verses 1 to 3 this morning. So why don't you uh, read alongside me, and maybe it's on the screens above. Now concerning foods offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, this is uh, an interesting passage. It's, it's, it, we really should read it as a whole chapter. So if you have time this week, why don't you read the whole thing? But I just want to save a bit of space for those who are going to be preaching after this message. But we're going to be focusing on a few things this morning that help us to identify what it means to be a loving church, a community, but what it also means to be a church that's living in a culture. And all of us here, I know, have different backgrounds, different uh, ways that we've been brought up, our ethnicity, our traditions, even our family history, they all impact how we relate to the culture and how we relate to each other. Now, I'm not sure if many of you here have grown up in a culture where idol worship was common practice. Um, for me, as an Asian Chinese oriental background, I had the privilege um, to go, have my mum is from Malaysia and my dad is from Hong Kong, and they emigrated here to the UK in the 70s. And um, during my time as, as, a young, as a young child, we would go to have family holidays, go back and see family in Malaysia. And my, one of my memories when I was maybe five, six years old, going back to, and we would stay in my um, uncle and auntie's house in Malaysia, in Penang, and they had ancestor worship. It was just one of the things that they, as Chinese people in that community, in that society, they had idols in their homes. And we would stay at their home, and we would go for like the whole summer, so it's a long summer for us. And there was this one shrine uh, on the landing with red lights and kind of scary figurines. And it was all a bit like, you know, as a little five-year-old, you kind of think, hmm, you know, I'm a bit creeped out. And I would go to the toilet in the middle of the night and be like, run past, you know, that, that thing. And go to the toilet and quickly run back past it. And, and actually, idol worship was part of that culture and that community. They weren't Christians. That family, wasn't, that family members weren't Christians, but we'd stay with them. My grandma was. And one of the things that we, I recognized and one of the things that they practiced was they would offer fruit in the morning and put it with the idols. And they would pray and have their joss sticks and they would put it on the, on the shrine. And then in the, evening, in the evening, they would bring that fruit and we would have it or we'd be offered it at mealtime for dinner when the whole family came around. So in that situation for me and my mom uh, was Christian and she would bring me and my brother there and it was like, okay, what do we do in this situation? What do we do? Honest questions. Should I be eating fruit that's been offered to an idol? Hmm, what should we do? I'll tell you later what we did. Um, but, you know, 
in our culture in the West, maybe we don't have that kind of um, direct um, cultural thing that is, is standing right before us, and we have to face it. In my other experiences, I lived in Hong Kong for a number of years as a teenager. Um, we moved from here in the UK to Hong Kong, and I had the privilege of growing up there for, in my teenage years. And part of the culture there was that annually there was a public holiday called Qingming, which was called the festival where you'd go and visit your ancestors' graves, and you would sweep them and clean them, and you would kind of do that practice as a family, and you would pay your respects to um, elders or in the family who had passed away. And because it was a public holiday, that was great as a kid, you know, now that they're off school. Um, but as a family, as my dad being the head of the family, you know, being the eldest son, going, we'd go to the, we'd go to the tradition, we would eat certain foods, we would visit the ancestral graves. But as a Christian family, we decided and we had to figure out how we would approach that festival, still honoring our culture, still honoring our family, but not participating in things that we felt were not in accordance with what we believed. Uh, maybe for you, you've got different things. Maybe you've got things in your culture, your background, which you identify with as being things that are part of your culture, who you are as your ethnicity or your background, your history, but yet at the same time, you're confronted by a culture. And we have to think about this carefully because this is what was facing the Corinthian church. We had a society, a multinational, uh, multilingual society in Corinth, which had many different people from different backgrounds, Jews, Greek, um, people from Rome, people from education, people who were not educated, people from, who were slaves, people who were free, all coming together. And then this body, the church was formed. And this body had Jesus as their king. And this body had a history to it, had a history in Israel, and people were invited into the body. And for us, sometimes what will happen is that there will be tension. There will be tension, won't there? My Christian beliefs, living in a culture, whether that's in Corinth or here in the UK, just north of London, where there's a culture that surrounds us, and we will find things that create tension between what we would say we want to live by and what we'd say people are living by outside of our, um, outside of our church. So it's interesting, it's a dilemma, isn't it? For the church in Corinth, um, they had people who were idol worshippers. They had many temples and many gods, many idols around them. They had a practice, a very normal practice of food, meat being offered to sacrifice to idols, and a portion of that would be kept back and it would be used as common commodity, as common use. Let me just read this from a commentary I read because it explains it just in very succinct ways. The worship of gods and idols saturated Corinthian society, where idol temples were integrated into many aspects of daily life. You would bring your offering to a god or idol. It was a near universal, near universal experience in Greek and Roman culture. If you were going to a banquet for a birthday, a business meeting, a wedding, a funeral, it was at an idol's temple. Christians and Jews who refused to enter idol's temples would find themselves isolated from much more than just religious culture, these practices just seem normal as an everyday part of life. So food offered to idols was eaten in idols' temples, but the food left over was sold in the markets. The questions facing Christians, many of whom had worshipped idols themselves before turning to Jesus, was that was it okay to eat anything that had been offered to an idol? Anything under any circumstances? What if someone was just serving food at a party? What if he didn't know that the food had been offered to an idol? 
And these were the questions that were happening in the Corinthian church. People were honestly, genuinely concerned about what it meant for them to be part of the culture, but still a Christian in that culture. And we see from the passage as we read later on in 1 Corinthians 8, there was tension, there was disagreement. There was the freedom party who said, you know what? It's fine. Jesus is Lord. He's the king. Everything is under his throne. He rules over all these things. There are no things as little gods. There is one true God, and his name is Jesus. And those people had that knowledge. They had a knowledge. They had assurance, a confidence to be able to say, you know what? I can eat whatever. God is the one who makes everything, and he's the one who sanctifies everything. So I'm confident in that. And there were people who were like that, and it was great. They were fine. They, we call them the Freedom Independence Party. It sounds like Eurosceptics, but um, they were the freedom people. They were like, yes, I'm free in Jesus. Nothing can hold me back. Chains are broken. I'm free in Jesus. Amen. But then there were people in the church who were cautious. And the Bible uses it in 1 Corinthians 8 when you read later on. They had a weak conscience. And it didn't mean that they were just, you know, oh, you know, I'm weak, yeah, I can't stand up. They were people who honestly had problems because of maybe their past history. Maybe they had been idol worshippers. Maybe they had been so involved and just simply saying, now you're in Jesus, carry on living. That was hard for them. That was hard for them because in their conscience they thought, if I am simply eating this meat that's been offered to an idol, it's like I'm worshipping that idol. You kind of see that. I hope you can see that. It's, it's not a simple yes, no answer. And because of that, there was division in the church. And because of that, there was disagreement. And because of that, some people were being hurt. Because some people were maybe overzealous, overconfident, and, some, and they weren't caring for those who were weaker. And I think sometimes this can happen in our common day church as well, can't it? And this is where we want to be real of ourselves and be real as a community. Because Paul in this passage commands us in certain things that we have to take hold of. He, he says very clearly in the verses we're going to read, verses 1 to 8, it says here, concerning food offered to idols, all of us possess knowledge. Now, the first thing I want to ask you guys to think about is that all of us want to mature, don't we? We all want to grow. We all want to know more about what God says, what his plan is for our life, what his plan is for us as a community, as a family. We want to be adhering to his word and his truth. So all of us should actually be seeking knowledge. We should be seeking maturity. We shouldn't feel like either I've made it because maybe we think we're overly clever, but we also shouldn't be thinking that, you know, I don't need to know. I don't need to grow. I don't need to know anymore. We do need to seek out truth and knowledge and wisdom. So Paul is very clear here that you need to seek after wisdom. I want to see you guys grow. I want your children in, up in Fuse and in Kids Zone to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of what it means to follow Jesus. That is what we long for, is that people would mature. But Paul says in this passage that there is a knowledge, there is a knowledge that leads to being puffed up. It says that in verse 2. This knowledge puffs up. Now, it's interesting when we read that word, because puffed up is almost like, it's almost like an inflation of a balloon, isn't it? You kind of, you know, a bit of knowledge, gets bigger. Oh, I'm getting a bit clever here. Oh, I know, I've, I've read through the Bible now at least 18 times. Uh, oh, I've read it through 19 times. You know, oh, I'm learning all these things. And it's seeking of knowledge and understanding wisdom is important. But 
there is a seeking of knowledge that can lead to being puffed up, to being prideful, to being thinking that you know more or better than someone else. And that's the warning that Paul really wants to do, lay down as a principle before he starts inviting people to consider whether idol eating food from idols is right or wrong. He wants to lay down some principles. And that principle is that there is a knowledge that can lead to being people puffed up. And ultimately, that can lead to being people being loveless. And that lovelessness can hurt and destroy people. And as a real warning that Paul lays down in Corinthians 8, that your knowledge can lead to arrogance, can lead to pride. It can lead then to lovelessness towards other people, other believers, and the world. And it can lead then to destruction. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I was, I was thinking about this this week. And this week I had the joy of kind of listening back to a load of sermons. Sometimes there's like a sermon backlog because, you know, I don't make the evening service. And one of the things I, I listened to was Nee's sermons. I don't know if Nee is here. Nee, no, no. Um, Nia did a great sermon on, on Acts. Oh, he's there. Um, it, was, it was fantastic. Uh, if you haven't listened back on the podcast, go listen to it. He was speaking about in Acts what the church is supposed to be, and he talked about integrity. And for me, it was interesting because sometimes when you know a lot of things or when you think you know a lot of things, it can lead to a fact that you just think you know better than everyone else. And for me, this week, as a parent to teenage girls, um, I, I felt very puffed up, <laughs> if I'm very, very honest. And uh, this is all about integrity, as Nee was preaching in, back in Acts. But as a parent with growing up young girls, uh, going into teenage years, um, as a dad, looking at society, looking at what they're investing their energy and time into, and thinking, oh, my goodness. And, and my girls aren't here. That's probably a good thing. Uh, they're away this weekend with their mum. But it was, you know, it was one of those weeks where I just saw I was just getting frustrated. I was getting, like, I just can't believe they spend all this time on this thing. I just can't believe YouTube is like this. I, can't, I just was feeling very, I don't know what the word is, uh, very frustrated with just how things were forming and the world they were living in. And for me, that led to, for me personally, that led to impatience. That led to being sharp and short with them. It led me being um, just, un, un, I'd say, unkind in a way. You know, very dismissive of them. And, you know, I think that's what happens, isn't it? When we know truth, when we know something is good, but we don't act out of love, and we choose to act out of, you know, our self-righteousness, or we choose to live out out of you know, our fears, then that doesn't lead to being loving. It leads to being puffed up. It leads to being loveless. And ultimately, that destroys. But God calls us when we have knowledge and we know the love of God, and we honor him, and we seek after him, and we know how it's changed our lives, and we want that for other people. We want that freedom for other people as well, isn't it? And to get that freedom, it doesn't mean that we bash them or we get angry. It means that we have to offer it in love. We have to trust. We have to seek connection so that it builds up and not tears down. Pride leads to lovelessness and harms others. But Paul says here, rather, knowledge should lead to love that builds others up. Now that's complex. I know it's complex. As a parent, it's really complex. As a person living in society, trying to figure out how you navigate different circumstances you work in, it's complex. But that's the heart of what Paul wants to lay as a principle. Does your knowledge, does your wisdom, does your understanding, your seeking after God lead to increased lovingness? 
and therefore wanting to see people built up and seek their freedom. Having knowledge in the kingdom should lead to a loving heart that builds people up, and it should lead to a loving honoring of who God is. So I want to leave us with those, those thoughts. Knowledge, in Paul's mind here, led to pride, led to lovelessness, led to destruction. But rather, knowledge in our lives should lead to freedom for others, offered in love, so that people are built up. And there's a great danger, isn't there, in the church sometimes, where if we, because um, I guess there's another extreme, isn't there? There's an extreme where we choose, rather than to challenge people when they need to be challenged, we choose to just to settle. We'd rather not have conflict. We'd rather not hold to a truth or a standard and rather let things just wash over. And for many of us, when that happens, we seem to then just allow the church to drift, or our families or our society to drift to the lowest common denominator. And that's not what we want as a church as well. We want people to mature, to grow, to build up so that people become mature, can make decisions with fear and trembling towards God as their savior. And there's a great danger that if we try to accommodate things and behavior of Christians, then you know, it leads to weakness in the church, not strength. And, it's an, and the church then withdraws rather than advances. So hopefully that's just... An honest assessment of where I am uh, in this in this struggle as a, as a, as a struggle uh, in this joy as a, a parent growing up with teenage girls, but maybe for you it's different. Maybe it's in your workplaces. How do I stand as a Christian in a culture that God has called me to live in? And that's what I want to talk about next: is that God has called you, each one of us individually, to be His hands and His feet in the places that you find yourself right now, whether that's at university, whether that's in your family unit, whether that's to your neighbors either side of you, whether that's to your social network group, or whether that's to your sports team, or whether that's to your place in your workplace. God has called you as a missionary to those places to live in that culture, but not be of that culture. And Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed for this for us because he knew it would be hard. He knew it would be a challenge as a Christian to live what he had called them to live by. And he says this in John 17, uh, Jesus' great high priestly prayer for the church. If you want to know what Jesus' heart toward you is, go read John 17 because this is what he prays for us as believers. Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. You sent me to the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus' prayer for you, his desire for you, here in St. Albans, in Hertfordshire, in the UK, is that Jesus would not take you out of this world, but he would send you into it that you would be in the culture, that you would be in the world, that you would be a light there. But he also prays that you would be protected, that you would know what is true, that you would know what is right, that you would be a light in a dark place. He prays that you would be sanctified, that you wouldn't be like the world, you would be standing out as a light shining in darkness, and that you would be sent there. And Jesus prays against two things, and I think these are really helpful things that we can learn, I think, from Jesus' prayer. He prays firstly against segregation. He prays against the church being segregated from society, being isolated. And there's another way you can talk about it is sectarianism. We choose 
as Christians, to, as a church, to take ourselves out of society, to live in our little compounds, serve, you, know, you come in, you can be part of this community, amazing, you know, we'll have fellowship, we'll have friendship, we'll have worship on Sundays, but we won't go out into the world because the world is evil, the world is polluted, I don't want that for me, myself, and my friends. So Christians, when we've seen this worked out in certain societies, in Christian societies, where the church and the Christians choose to distance themselves and disengage from society rather than engage and are involved in society. And maybe the reasons for that are fear. If we're very honest, you know, I love to take my girls out of society, but they're in a society. It's probably sometimes fear that drives that thinking. I don't want to be polluted. I don't want this for my family. I don't want whatever it is, to be influencing me and those who I love. But maybe also it's self-righteousness. I'm better than that. Look at that evil. How can they be like that? Look at me. I'm pure. I'm standing here. And Jesus prays against that. He prays that we won't be out of the society. He prays that we won't be segregated. We won't be legalistic. So Jesus prays against that extreme. Jesus also prays that against liberalism. He prays against that we won't be compromising, that we won't be corrupted by the world and what it's saying is right because we have a God who knows what is true and what is righteous. And that's the thing that Jesus prays for. He says, protect them from the evil one, sanctify them, renew them, make them that light that shines in darkness. The culture that surrounds us, surrounds us. And whether you like it or not, when you walk out of these doors, you are in it. But Jesus says, go. Be light. Be not of this world. Be in the world, but not of this world. So how do we navigate this tension? How do we navigate these two roads, these extreme boundaries? And as Clive said a few weeks ago, we have to walk this narrow road in between. This middle road that calls us to be light and to be holy and to be righteous before Jesus and before others but also to enter into society and to love, to be involved, to be engaged, and to not withdraw. And this is a real tension, isn't it? Because I'm, most of us now, maybe in our minds, we're thinking, what does that look like for me? What does that look like for me? And for all of you, I know there's been many different situations that you face. But for us, I want to give us a, just four questions that maybe we should be asking ourselves. How the church should be engaging with culture. These may be things that are helpful for us as Christians as we choose to figure out how we are to live out our lives uh, Monday, to Monday to Sunday through our work life and through our educational life and with our friends and our neighbors. And these are just four questions that we can ask ourselves, which are hopeful, hopefully helping guidelines. The first one is, when we choose to engage with culture and we choose to live our lives in front of others and before others, is what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say as our first guiding principle. Because there are universal truths that um, guide us and are, are, are basically the places, the boundaries which God sets out for us in his word. And they're very clear. Um, don't murder. Don't steal. Um, don't covet. Don't lust after someone else's wife. Jesus takes it to extreme, isn't it? Even if you think in your heart or your mind then you've already committed that sin. So Jesus in his word is very clear that the Bible, we read the Bible like this. We don't read it putting our opinions on it. We read the Bible like this with it over our heads as our authority 
in which we choose to lead our lives under. When we choose to read the Bible like this, when it's over us, then it, it, it's safety. It's a safety place. It's a place where God has already established what is right and true. It's universal truth for us to live by. And when we read it like that, what you'll find is that there'll be things that are contrary to the culture. There'll be things in this book which will be different to what the world would say is right and righteous. And for us to navigate with that, then we need wisdom. We need the truth. We need to understand it. We need to read it. We need to also ask for wisdom to live by, how to apply that in our daily lives. Um, we already read in the previous chapters in Corinthians, in Corinthians uh, 7, about relationships. What should I do in marriage and in sex and in singleness? And those are things that we, we preach through because we want you guys to have principles which you live by, whatever season of life you're in. And that's helpful. That's what we want to do, reading through books and preach through books of the Bible, so that we engage with the truth of God in that way, and we have it as our authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Don't you want that for your life? to be fully equipped for everything that God has called you for. Love this book. Submit to its authority. Read it for yourself. The Lord will speak to you. The Lord will convict your heart, as he has done for many of us. But we mustn't... Sometimes what happens in church is that we take the, the word, and then we create rules. We create rules. And we don't want to put rules on people. We don't want to put rules on people because that is legalism. We want to, if you're going to go out and steal something, I'm going to say, no, don't do it because the Lord says, don't do that. <laughs> it's a sin. There are clear things. But where there's gray areas, you could say, then we have to allow, there is allowance in the word, in, 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 in scripture to, to us to gain wisdom from other people, but also look at our situations. And that's almost what the Christian church is facing. In God's wisdom, he puts authority over us, such as his word. He puts the laws of the land. So you can't go drive a car until you're 17 or 18 years old, right? Yeah, you wouldn't trust a, a, a four-year-old. Maybe um, no one Katrina do, but maybe you don't want to trust a, a, a four-year-old with, with a car, do you? Because they're not mature enough. The laws of the land said that certain things shouldn't be allowed until certain ages, etc., etc. So God, in his wisdom, puts authorities also in laws that we live in. He gives us parents. The Bible is full about honoring parents, honoring children, honoring their parents, being brought up as a father teaches a son in Proverbs, as a mother shares wisdom with their young ones. That's what God puts in, authorities such as parents who love God, who love children, who love the children who have had experiences in life and can lead people through life. He also gives the church elders and teachers, people who would stand on this pulpit, not because we're cleverer or not because we're somehow more holy, but because God has asked us to be fathers, to see children nurtured in this church. And that is the heart of the eldership team here, that we would be fathers to help you grow. So that's what the Bible says. The Bible says, is your choices in engaging with society in line with the Bible, first and foremost, and with wisdom that comes from there? But the second thing we can question is when we make decisions about whether to engage in culture or how we engage in culture is, should I be doing it? Should I be doing it? What does my conscience say? 
And God has given us, each of us, a conscience. And in, as, as Christians, we believe we have the Holy Spirit in us, yeah? And part of what we hold to is that the Holy Spirit is our parakletos. He's the one who guides us. He's the one who um, is our counselor, the one who leads us through all truth. And we put ourselves under God's word. When we put ourselves under the Holy Spirit and we choose to obey his prompting, his leading, then he will lead us forwards as well in how we engage with culture. Um, and that means that sometimes there are certain things that your conscience would say are okay. And there are certain things which my conscience will say are okay. And there are some people's conscience will say that is not okay for me. And there is freedom in that. I want to just share um, a story from a men's weekend we had a few years ago where um, I was helping to lead this men's weekend and we had a guest speaker. We invited him along to come and to share um, his life but also share some teachings from, da the, from David, Life of David. And the first night we had dinner together, all the men together, and some of the guys had brought a load of beers and wine, and we were, you know, lovingly, out of an act of kindness and brotherly love, it was like, you know, here you go, here you go, everyone, if you want one. And it was a great time, it was a fantastic evening, good food, good friends around the table. And out of, you know, as you would, guest speaker, would you like to sit here, would you like a drink as well? And here's your, I don't know, Carlsberg, let's see. And it was interesting because the first thing he said to me is, oh, no, no, thank you. Um, I'm teetotal. I thought, what's teetotal? What does that mean? And being an, being an idiot, I was just like, teetotal, that must be some medical condition. Uh, I thought, I had to go search up on Google. What does, what does it mean, teetotal? And for those of you who are confused, just like I was around that dinner table, um, his, his story was that he is a recovered alcoholic. And he had chosen... Um, by his own conscience and his own experience and his own life growing to that point, to not to drink because that was part of his story. And that was part of what God had saved him from and rescued him from gloriously, miraculously. And he shared that that weekend. And I felt like an idiot. Um, but you know what I mean? That, that is somebody's conscience telling them, you know what, for me, for my life and what's good for me, no, thank you. I'm going to abstain. And in this church, um, there are people here who would happily have a drink at dinner. And we have meals together, and they would happily have a drink. I'm not sure if we have any beers in the fridge, actually. Maybe we do. But, uh, you know, some churches will put that on, on a church and say, you know, no, alcohol. Uh -uh. Now, drunkenness, that's, that's different, right? Behavior, which is out of control, out of no self-control, not, not being able to, um, to know your limits and to exercise wisdom and authority, that's different. But, you know, here we see clearly that my conscience says, this is not good for me, therefore I will choose to abstain. Also, it means that we don't put those rules on other people. I can't say to you, don't drink. I can say, don't get drunk, be self-controlled, as the Lord says in his word. But, you know, if you have a drink, it's fine. Um, so, yeah, we, that, that, that's just one example. And um, for me, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as somebody growing up in society here, I went to university in London. Um, we all know early university years can be fraught with many different things. And for me, I, as, a, as an older teenager, through to my 20s, I had a group of friends, and they, we all came from school and went to London as university, and we would hang out, we would drink, and we would have you know, nights out and stuff like that. 
And for me, it was interesting because I felt in my own conscience that I didn't have, during those years, the maturity, the self-control, and the ability to know limits in my life around drinking and around friends and parties and stuff like that. So for me, during those years, I made a conscious choice in my first year at university to actually withdraw from that group because for that season of life, I just knew that it wasn't helpful for me. It wasn't healthy. And it doesn't mean you can't go out with your friends on a Friday night and enjoy time. Absolutely not. You can't go to the pub and, you know, and, and socialize because that's where people are at. That's where culture is. But for me, I just couldn't. And now I can say, say that I am fine. Isn't it? My, and this is where it comes in, that this choice, these choices that we make do change as well. They can change with maturity. They can change with your stage of life. And now I can easily go out with, with friends after work and have a drink and, and, and be in the culture, but not of the culture. Does that kind of help? That these things, that when we know our conscience and we follow the Holy Spirit, when we don't ignore it, we can make choices that are honoring to ourselves and to Jesus. Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's your choice of food. Maybe you're vegan. Maybe you're vegetarian. And those are choices that you've made. Many of them may be health reasons. There may be personal reasons you've chosen that way. Maybe they're ethical reasons, which are all valid. But then there are people who eat meat as well. And we will love each other. And we will live together in this community. And we will enter into society so that's one thing. Firstly, what does the Bible say? Secondly, what should I do it? What does my conscience say? Thirdly, what does my weakness require? What does my weakness require? So when we talk about weaknesses, we have to know ourselves, don't we? We have to know where we are susceptible, where we know we're not strong. But it also means we know where we are strong. For me, for example, I, I have no problems. I have no desire to smoke. I just don't. I just never have. Never when I when someone smokes or you're in an environment where it is, it just it's not for me. Um, I've never taken drugs. I have no desire to take recreational drugs. It just isn't part of my weaknesses. It's a strength, I would say. And because of that, I have no problems going and being with people who are smoking. Downwind. Um, I have no problems. You know, it's, it's, I don't get tempted, and that's fine. But for someone else who has had a history of whatever it may be, their background, maybe that isn't the most healthiest way they should be engaging with society. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah? So we have to know our weaknesses. We have to know our strengths. And therefore, how God has called us into society to be a light in that place. If you, your background is a recreational drug taker, maybe it's not great to hang out with your pot-smoking friends but over time, maybe God does that, and, and there's a, I think God uses everything for his glory, doesn't he? He redeems, he redeems our lives, and he restores them, and he can work all things for good, and we trust that. But maybe for this season, it's not a great idea. Well, what are our weaknesses? So I, swear, I shared my strength. I should really, out of integrity, I should share my weaknesses as well, shouldn't I? Um, for me personally, one of the weaknesses I'm finding since lockdown was just the work-life balance. Being very honest, you know, working from home now, it's like a normality. That's all what society says. I find that boundary between work and whatever it is, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. to evening, quite a bit of a challenge for me. And, you know, by recognizing my weaknesses, I, the lines between home and life have to be clearer. I have to disengage from things that are going from work. I have to choose things differently. I have to put in practices to help me release my energy, not towards work, but then now to my family. 
And for us, it'll be different. But this is where God calls us in wisdom to know our weaknesses, to know our strength, and therefore engage in society. Should I work hard? Absolutely. Should I work for the business that I'm, I'm part of? Absolutely. Should I do my best? Yes. But know where my boundaries lie and what's helpful for me and what's helpful for my family. So the Corinthian church had these very same problems. They had strengths. People were strong. They didn't have a problem with idol worship. Maybe they had a Jewish background, which meant that they only worshiped Yahweh, the only true God. They had no problems because they knew Yahweh was God. Then you had people maybe who were slaves in the temple, partaking of it. Maybe they were ex-prostitutes, part of the temple society in Corinth. And they've been rescued out of that and redeemed. And suddenly, they've been offered meat from that society again. And that's hard for them. So strength should give us freedom. When we know we're strong, it should give us freedom and liberty to jump into society, engage with it with all our hearts, all our love. But where we're weak, we have to recognize and be honest and even choose to restrict ourselves. So we don't sin and we don't betray a poor witness. Lastly, so we talked about what does the Bible say? What should we do? What does my weakness require? Lastly, does my behavior help my friends? Does my choices help those around me? And this is a really challenge. And this is what Paul, I think, in his first three three verses of um, Corinthians 8, has really wanted to hone in on. That your choices don't just affect you and your loved ones. It affects you. It affects those in your community. It affects the body. It affects your friends around you. Our world, doesn't it, 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 our world so much um, values self-autonomy, my choices, my rights, what I'm going to do, it's me, it's my choice. But already we've seen that when we make choices out of selfishness and selfish ambition, then we recognize that those choices also affect others around us. And the Corinthians church is really clear that people's choices in expressing their freedom of eating meat offered to idols had then affected the brothers and sisters around them who had a weaker conscience and were impacted by their choices. And it's really interesting because we are, our choices are not to live for ourselves anymore. That is the freedom that Jesus has bought for us. We don't live for selfish ambition anymore. Rather, we choose to live for Christ and for the least of these, those whom he loves, those who he has bought, purchased with his blood, those who are lost without him. We choose not to live for ourselves and our own selfish gain, but we choose to live for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the lost and those in our community. It says this, what is more important than your freedom is your friends. I, what we're saying to each other is, I love you more. I love you more than my freedoms and my choices. And because of that, we can choose And this is the amazing thing about Jesus, that he doesn't just say these things. He gives us the power to do that. He gives us the power to choose. This is what Christian freedom is. Christian freedom is no longer serving yourself because of your selfish, sinful compulsions. It's now being able to serve the king and ask for the Holy Spirit to come on us so that we can live out a supernatural life that serves him and loves others unendingly. That is the supernatural core that God has called us to, friends. And the only example I could think of this in recent times for us as a, as a whole nation was 
during the COVID-19 pandemic. Anybody remember that? We all judge our, our, our life now, don't we, by the three years or so since those, those times of restrictions. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't know where you were, if you were part of this church or part of another church at that time, but it was a real struggle to navigate the restrictions that were placed on us as a society and as a church. And even within the church body, there was different opinions about whether we should be wearing masks, whether we shouldn't, whether we should be doing X, whether we should be doing Y. And many struggles, really, people in churches really struggled with these hard questions of what is right what is good? Is it safe to meet in person? Should we be wearing masks in the meetings? Um, all of you with beards maybe struggled with that a lot more than others. Um, and people of faith, people of genuine faith, genuinely disagreed about the answers to these questions. And I remember during that time as a church, as we thought and prayed about what we should be doing, we knew it is right to meet. But at the same time, we knew it was right to love and to care for the for those who are ill in society and those who are vulnerable. And we chose, this is our simple statement, we chose that we act out of love for each other, not out of selfish desire. And that's how we decided to do church during that time. We chose to restrict our freedoms, our choices, even though we didn't like it, so that others would be felt loved and nurtured and cared for. And that is the choices that we have to make as a church continuously in different areas of spheres of our church life and as we engage with society. How will I choose in my freedom to restrict myself so that others may be loved and honored? It's a hard question to ask, but Jesus gives us that freedom. He gives us that freedom. I want to close this morning by simply just reminding us about how Jesus gives us that freedom. Jesus gave us that freedom to be brave, to be sacrificial, to live in freedom without fear in a culture. He gave us that freedom because, not because he tells us to, because he gave us the example. He gave us a perfect example of what it means to give up your freedom, what it means to lay down your life for others so that others may receive the joy of being included in the family. He did this. God calls you into communities, he calls you into society, but he gives you a way. The king of creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, chose not to keep his freedom. He chose to give it up. The word says this in John, 1 John 3.16, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he chose to send his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, let us ought to go and love one another. Jesus is that perfect example that he left the throne of heaven where he had authority and he chose to draw near to each one of us. In our culture, in our mess, he gave up his freedom, left his throne, entered our world. He drew near to you and I. He didn't withdraw. He didn't step back and leave us. But instead, he came to love you as a sinner. Jesus, but he didn't just love you. He brought you truth. He confronted you in love, and he didn't compromise on what truth was. But Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself. He became an obedient servant, even unto death. He destroyed 
the power of sin over your life. He destroyed the fear so that you might have perfect freedom. But he also rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father so that we could be called children of God. And he stands with all authority in his hands now. And he says to you, church, go. Go into communities. Go into culture. Go into society with that power, with that authority, with that love, with that compassion for the lost so that others may be drawn in as well. If we withdraw, we're not serving. But if we're empowered, we go with his love, with his power, with his authority. And church, that is my call for you this morning, that you would know, leaving this place, that you are known by God and that you're loved by him, but that you're also called by him to go and to love these communities that you live in now. And for that to happen, we need to really know that we're known by God and loved by him. We need to really know that. And that's why we come. And that's why we sing. And that's why Naomi and Nathan led us so wonderfully this morning in worship, because we realign ourselves again to what Jesus says is the call of my life. Not to be segregated and just enjoy my Christian walk, but to go in power and authority that people may know that Jesus is king. So I want to pray for us this morning. I want to pray that the power of the king, that the authority of the king would be on us. And if you're like me, if you're anything like me, fear exists. Weakness exists here. But I want to know the power of the resurrection in my life. The authority that Jesus says, you are mine. I've called you by name. Go walk, my child, in the ways I have called you to. So I want to pray for that. I want to pray for us this morning against weaknesses. I want to pray for knowledge that would release us from fear, that we might be witnesses who go out with knowledge and wisdom and in love. I want to pray for us as a church body this morning also, that we might be a community that loves, nurtures, honors one another, takes where we are in our weaknesses and matures together in unity. And that's what Clive was praying for this morning, that we would go together in unity, honoring each other and caring for one another. And lastly, I want to pray that we would be a witness. We would be a powerful witness to people around us. God will give us wisdom how to do that. He knows where you are. He knows the people you will face tomorrow in the office or at school or at university. He knows them and he loves them and he calls you to love them and serve them too. So would you please stand with me this morning? That's what you desire. If you desire for God to come now and free you from fear, to equip you with wisdom and knowledge, why don't you just raise your hands with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are wisdom, that you are love, that you are freedom. So I pray now for my friends who, when we raise our hands, we say, Lord, that we have fear, we have weakness, but I pray, Lord, you would free us in Christ. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us, that all fear is destroyed. All powers and principalities now are removed because we are in Jesus. And Jesus, would you come and now fill my friends with a fresh anointing of wisdom and knowledge that leads to love.
that leads to service. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for us as a church family that your body would be one that cares for every member, that those who are wise would share their wisdom. Those who have plenty would share with those who have less. Those who feel weak would be strengthened by the strong. Those who are young would be nurtured by the old. Those who have experience would share in love their wisdom. And we pray for unity, God, that we would honor each other, that would lay down our rights for one another, that the church body may be grown and become full in you. And Lord, I pray also for our fruitfulness in our lives. Lord, I pray out of this time, as we go out, Lord, not in fear, but in confidence in you, but and in, as the church goes out in unity, that we would be a light to the nations. We would be a light to the communities around us. Give us strategies, Lord. Give us wisdom. Give us compassion in our hearts to love the lost, to walk in society and just know the things to say. We would know the people to speak to. We would have the confidence to bring Christ into the conversation. We would be brave, Lord, to love those who are unlovable because you love them not because of what society says. We thank you, Jesus, that this is your call on the church. Would you equip us now by the power of the Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.